This is the Education Gadfly Show. Oh yeah, you put a little iodine and mineral oil, man, it just bronzes you right up. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Doug Lamov. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you back, Doug. Doug, as everyone knows, is the author of Teach Like a Champion and also co-managing director of the organization of the same name. He is here to talk about a book. I'm going to say new book. It's actually a forthcoming book (laughs) still in the works. Hopefully new book. (laughs) A hopefully new book called Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging. Doug, it's so great to have you here and to talk about this book. Well, I'm really excited to talk about it. It's a tough book to write because it's a challenging time, but it's important. You know, I'm lucky to have some great co-authors that I'm writing it with that are helping me make sure I keep it real. And I should warn folks, uh, there may be some noise in the background as my house is, <laughs> there's all kinds of work being done in my house. I'll try to put myself on mute when I can. But okay, Doug, so let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. So, Doug, you know, Teach Like a Champion, such an incredible resource and other books that you've been writing, you know, you more than anybody else, uh, you just do a great job going into the classroom and helping people see what fantastic teaching and learning looks like. This book is, is very much about uh, this moment in time, right? As we are coming out of this pandemic, knock on wood, that's me knocking, not the hammers behind me, you know, and we are Uh, seeing that what many of us feared has come true, which is that kids have lost a lot of ground academically and a lot of kids are really struggling socially and emotionally. So tell us, uh, tell us what you think about all that. Well, first of all, it's an incredibly tricky moment in time. And thank you to all the educators out there who are, uh, who are on the front lines trying to deal with it. If there's been a harder moment in time for educators, I'm not aware of what it was. I don't think any of us imagined that when we came back, we yearned to be back with our kids in classrooms. And I don't think that any of us imagined that it would be harder, perhaps, than the pandemic years in many ways. So it's a dual crisis with several, you know, that we're dealing with, with several root causes. The dual crisis is both academic, right? I don't know why we're afraid to name the fact that kids did not learn optimally. Of course, classrooms matter. Of course, being in the room matters. Of course, kids are way behind academically as a result of the pandemic. And calling that unfinished learning doesn't help at all. There are massive gaps academically. But there are also these gaps socially and psychosocially in students' well-being and their sense of connectedness. And that's something we also have to address. I was down in Texas uh, speaking to a group of, you know, sort of senior administrators in districts down there a couple of weeks ago. It's maybe 190 people in the room. And I asked, how many people perceive students to have changed in their daily behaviors in, in significant and important ways since they've come back from pandemic. And, you know, of the 190 people in the room, there might have been two people who didn't raise their hands. And so I said, well, you know, like, what are the changes? And they said, it's a variety of them, but, you know, students, students' social skills have diminished. And what used to be small disagreements between students now blow up quickly. And soon there are, you know, like fights in schools that have never seen fights before. And just as importantly, you know, like friendships ruined and degraded and friendships are incredibly valuable over what should be small, easily reconciled things. And students lacking the patience to persist with tasks and giving up quickly and easily and throwing up their hands at, um, at challenging work at exactly the time when we need to be able to give students challenging work. And so I think there's a pervasive sense that, um, you know, not to mention, you know, attendance issues, right, and just kids coming to school as it never mind being connected in school. 
And so there's this sort of pervasive sense that there have been both psychosocial changes in students that need to be addressed and academic uh, issues that need to be addressed. So the book, I'm writing it with three co-authors who are brilliant, and I'm lucky to be writing with them, Hillary Lewis, Daryl Williams, and Denarius Frazier. And what we're trying to do is just take a practical look at some of the solutions that schools are coming up with to a variety of the problems they're facing. Um, so we can get down to, you know, like brass tacks, real solutions to real problems. And in the title, there is this notion of school culture and this idea that you're trying to rebuild a school culture, right? I mean, you can't pretend that the school culture you had before this horrible pandemic is still in, intact. I mean, we've all been through hell <laughs> since then, yeah, uh, in yeah. a way, from our schools. So, you know, how, how do people think about that process of rebuilding a culture? Yeah, one of the things we were writing a lot about is, you know, I think a really important word for us is the word belonging, which is, you know, just our sense that we are, are meaningfully a part of something. And when I go back to watch videos of the best teachers in Teach Like a Champion, a lot of what they do is academic. But a lot, a lot of what they do is also psychosocial. It's also giving kids a clear sense of belonging, that like you matter in this classroom, your voice matters, uh, your aspirations matter. And part of the reasons that they behave in the ways that are academically optimal is because they believe that they matter in that classroom. And so recreating that sense of belonging is really important. And, and maybe I could just step back for a second here, because I th- in the first chapter is about just describing the problem. And I think the problem is not just the pandemic, though the pandemic was, you know, like a once in a generation adverse event that clearly had massive social and academic consequences for students. It's also, I'm sorry to say, a pandemic wrapped up in an epidemic. And the epidemic is smartphones and social media. And even before the pandemic started in 2017, if you read Gene Twenge's book, iGen, which is a, you know, a study of, of a deep study of annual surveys by thousands of teenagers about the daily aspects of their life. She finds what she describes as historic, you know, a spike in anxiety, loneliness, and death and uh, depression among teenagers of historical. And she'd never seen anything like it in all her years of studying generational change. It maps to the time when social media became universal. I.e., if you're a teenager, so many other teenagers have a smartphone and social media that to be engaged with them and have a social life, you have to have it too. And at that point, suddenly a whole variety of things happen. But one of the major things that happens is kids stop going out and doing the things that you and I did when we were teenagers, right? The good news is rates of teenage pregnancies are are at historic lows and so are death by motor vehicle accident. Uh, So there are some upsides to this. The downside is what are kids doing instead of those things? The average 12th grader in 2017 went out less often than the average 8th grader and 10th grader did at at the beginning of the century, right? That's a massive change in social behavior. And we all see it all, you know, parents, I mean, I've, I've got a 14 year old, so we're just getting into this stage, but yeah, I keep thinking, man, I don't, I didn't think I was like a crazy social eighth grader back then, but I, we did, we went out and this doesn't seem to be happening for anybody these days. Yeah. And so the pandemic is sort of wrapped up in these larger epidemic of social change, which, you know, resulted in social isolation, psychological isolation, unhappiness, historic rates of loneliness, anxiety, and depression. And that was in 2017, before the pandemic, when what do kids do when suddenly everything that they valued in their life outside of the house evaporated, you know, they mass, they, they massive doses of social media. And so, you know, the average tweens uh, now spends five and a half hours on, on their phone and the average teenager spends something like seven and a half hours on their cell phone. And so those are hugely negative for their 
both for their social skills and for their social well-being. All that data is from, you know, the 2017 data, at least is from before like TikTok and the latest generation of like maximally addictive, maximally, maximally anxiety inducing social media. So those are two trends that are overlapping. And it's, you know, I don't think we can really disaggregate them because they have similar effects on young people. The third trend that we described is just is the erosion of faith in institutions, right? We're at historical, uh, historical lows in faith in, in government and government institutions, and that inclu- includes schools and school principals. And so at this moment, when we're dealing with, you know, a pandemic inside an epidemic and an academic crisis, we also have a lack of faith in our institutions. And that's, it makes it really hard to operationalize change. You know, one of the really hard things we talk about in the book, which I'll just come right out and say is I, I think responsible schools need to restrict cell phone access during the day. A cell phone is an attention fracturing machine. Attention is behind every academic task. If you want to have a, have a place where students can learn optimally, they cannot have their cell phones out during class, barring like some exceptional reason. They have to be off and away and in their bags. And that is really, really hard to do. And to do it, you have to convince parents and students and frankly, teachers, because the first way it gets undercut is some teacher out there decides that they're going to be the cool teacher. And that's, you know, that's how your system breaks. We have to convince those people that it's a worthwhile decision and that you can execute, that you're, you have the capacity as an organization to execute it in a time when there's diminished trust. It's an incredibly big challenge, but an incredibly important challenge. And that's kind of, that's sort of where the, where the book starts. And we, after we lay all that, that litany of woes out, I say like, that's, you know, sorry for the like depressing start. I promise this is an optimistic book. There are solutions out there. We're <laughs> just going to butt it. But it's real, right? The uh, the challenge is real. Well, that's right, and and uh, and it is just the starting point. But wow, in this the screen time bit, yeah, I mean it's it, it is hard to imagine how we can justify using phones in schools when they're on it nonstop. You know, when they're not at school, and sure, there's technology people out there come up with interesting ways that you can use it, and and some you know ways to give feedback. But look, on on the whole. It is. It is not helping us. We all know in our own lives as adults that uh, we would be better off putting it away more so that we can focus on the people around us or on what we're trying to concentrate on. And we need to model that to our young people. So I am sure, Doug, there's a million more things we can talk about. Hey, the good news is uh, you're, you're still wrapping up this book so we can have, maybe have you come back when you've gotten further along and we, <laughs> we can talk about some of the other important issues but i i do hear you you're saying don't don't despair educators there are some cons- you know some concrete things people can do as well not just be the mean guy to take away the phones yeah i mean the, there are, there are people out there who are out of necessity generating real solutions one of the things we know about educators is that they're incredible problem solvers so maybe can, can i tell you about one really quickly I'll, all right one more yeah tell, tell, give us give us some hope on the way out Great. I'll tell you about Charlie Friedman. He is, um, he runs Nashville Classical Charter School in Nashville, Tennessee. He's just a really smart and reflective leader. And, um, he got together with his administrative team. And what they decided was they wanted to rethink extracurricular activities to build them around the idea of belonging. Right. Cause so without even thinking about it, like so often, like sports teams, it's about winning. And that's the way we perceive that they maybe contribute to school culture. And so they did a bunch of really brilliant things. They got together. First of all, he got together with his, his leadership team and said, how can we rebuild our extracurricular activities around belonging? So the first thing that they did was they, they increased the stipend, you know, for coaching a sports team or doing an extracurricular activity. And they deliberately encouraged the teachers who were the best connectors 
uh, and the best relators to do those things. Instead of the person who knows the most about tennis or the most about basketball, right? They want the person who's the best at building culture there because that's the purpose of it is to build culture and belonging. And then they were like, you know, they extended tryout periods to a month so that all the kids who got who tried out and got caught still got to be like a part of things and build the relationships and feel like they'd been a part of the program. And then they engineered the audience experience, which I think is really fascinating, right? For two reasons, right? Part of the joy of playing is playing for the audience. And if no one comes in the audience, it's not half as engaging as if it's, you know, a packed house of people cheering for you. And so they did a lot. They had like chants and songs that they sang and they shot t-shirts into the audience. Like they do it, you know, at professional sporting events, you know, it costs you five bucks. And suddenly everyone's having a great time and it's more fun to play, but also you feel this profound sense of belonging if you're in the audience because you feel more connected to the event. There are a bunch of other things they did that, um, you know, you have to read the book to find out. But I thought it was just an incredibly sophisticated way of going about thinking about things that we're already doing and how we can rewire them to focus on this idea of how do we make kids feel like they belong to this institution. Well, Doug, I, I love that. It's reflective. And again, this focus on belonging. You're right. We all need that. Kids need that. I have to say, as, as uh, Parkway West Senior High School, Mr. Spirit, 1991, I strongly support these fun <laughs> ideas for how to make uh, everybody enjoy the experience. And, and I love it that a, a great example on extracurriculars. I mean, that, of course, so, so much when we talk about culture or SEL or all these things that are beyond academics, you know, we, we talk about well, how can we make math class more conducive to these things? I mean, okay, but you know what? What really works is that all the stuff that happens around the academics. And of course, that's a big part of, of the, the school experience for kids. Hey, Doug, thank you so much. Again, Doug Lamov, who, as you all know, is the author of Teach Like a Champion, but is also working on a new book. Look for it soon-ish. Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. Look forward to having you back sometime soon. Thanks, Mike. And by the way, you're still Mr. Spirit to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Doug. That means a lot coming from you. All right, everybody. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Enjoying this summer-like weather oh, we're having. Oh wow, it is so nice today. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. I know you're. Well, you you grew up on the beach, right? You were. I did. I used to put uh, mineral oil and iodine was, was uh, what I put on for a tan. Yeah. Oh God. It was crazy. Did Woo. that? Did that work? Oh yeah, you put a little iodine and mineral oil. Man, it just bronzes you right up. Okay. <laughs> you you might want to go see a dermatologist. Yeah, huh? I, okay. believe you, Mike. I do. Uh, uh, every, yeah. every year I get checked out because I did that many years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, so that was maybe not an evidence based uh, decision that you made way back then. But, no, but let's, let's, no, what, no UVB support in that one. All right. Well, anyway. what, what, what you got on the education research front? Today? We have a new study that examines how school quality impacts housing prices mm-hmm. via school zoning and rezoning. This one got my attention because there's this complicated situation. Uh, folks probably remember in Memphis City and Shelby County schools. Uh, In 2013, after many years of conflict among these various communities, Memphis City and Shelby County in Tennessee consolidated into one system, Mm -hmm. creating one of the largest districts in the country. Then, after a year in and out of the courts, six Memphis suburbs were allowed to and subsequently voted to 
create separate municipal districts. Mm -hmm. So you had this big merger and then you had this subsequent big splintering of districts. So the situation, researchers love this. It provides a natural experiment. There you go. Yes. (laughs) In which some homes remain in their original school zones and others are reassigned to a different school Among the homes that were rezoned to new schools, substantial variation existed in the change in school quality, which is important. Analysts look at changes in school boundaries via difference in differences model that allows them to disentangle school and neighborhood characteristics and identify the impact of school quality again on home prices, independent of who controls the schools or of the demographic composition of the schools. It is quite the model that they used here, but I'll try to explain it simply. First, analysts were able to verify that the boundary changes created variation in home values that were unrelated to pre-existing home trends. So they looked into that. Also, critical for the models that they used, houses rezoned to different schools within the same original school catchment area can't be systematically different along observable or unobservable characteristics So they've got this pretty cool data set. They're able to look at resales. So that means many homes have been sold multiple times over the 18 years in which they have property sale data. So they're able to compare the price of the same house in two different school zones before and after the zoning changes, which they refer to as, quote, parcel fixed effects. So that was pretty cool. The big finding is that a one standard deviation increase in state test scores increases housing prices by 4%. Likewise, a one standard deviation improvement in ACT test scores increases housing prices by 2.6%. And that same uh, standard deviation increase in graduation rates results in a 1% housing increase These estimates are roughly similar across elementary, middle, and high school levels. They looked at all all of those levels and didn't see much difference. All told, homes in the smaller independent municipal districts sold for 6 to 8% higher than comparable homes in the large unified district, holding constant school-level performance on standardized tests. So they basically say they interpret this as preference for local control versus control by this larger unified district. And then once they controlled for school-level racial diversity, the estimates were about one percentage point smaller, but they remained significant. And then on the flip side, a one standard deviation increase in school-level racial diversity was linked to a one to two percent decrease in home values, independent of academic performance and the status of whether it was controlled by the smaller or larger district entity. But there was no difference in demand across schools with varying percentages of non-white students. So the authors close by basically saying that the literature has now reached consensus. You never hear this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the literature has now reached consensus on the capitalization of school quality and housing markets. Uh, apparently, numerous studies now with all these different sorts of methods have consistently found that a one standard deviation change in test scores leads to increases or decreases between 2 to 3% in the housing market. So mm-hmm. this is something we apparently know now, Mike. All right. So let me just be clear. When you say change in test scores, do you mean difference in test scores or are you talking about improvements here? Well, at the end, when they were talking about all of these various studies, they showed both. If you have a decrease, you have a decrease in housing. If an increase okay. in test scores, you have an increase in, in housing. So that's yeah. what they were saying with the larger 
with a larger bit. And then the cynic would say, well, look, this is all code for race, right? Or at least race and class that, you know, these homes, of course, homes where the schools serve, you know, entirely upper middle class kids, you know, they're they're going to be more expensive there. And and those kids also do well on test scores. I mean, is mm-hmm. so when they control for the racial demographics of the schools, you certainly see some. Right. 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 Well, that, but for the most part, they were able to control for that because, again, they were able to look at these um, new boundaries. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you'd have a school that was rezoned. And mm-hmm. now the kids are going to a school with, you know, 15 percent fewer kids reaching proficiency mm-hmm. where they used to be going to a school where, you know, 25 were percent were above proficiency. Mm-hmm. So they definitely saw cases where, you know, the district uh, boundaries just created all these, you know, wacky sort of, you know, new, new situations mm-hmm. for these schools. Yep. All right. So, so, so cut, cut across that. I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is to say, can, can we say that we think it's it's more than just race and class, that there is something about school quality, yeah. underlying school quality as well? Right. That's okay. right. Because no. they looked, yeah, they looked at, you know, graduation rates, they looked mm-hmm. at test scores, they looked at ACT scores. So, you know, they looked at more than one measure and they were all pointing in the same direction mm-hmm. too. So that mm-hmm. gives them increased confidence as well that, that the market is picking up on school quality. Okay. All right. Hey, that... I'll take that. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Well, hey, that that is uh, that is encouraging. Of course, the, you know, there's all kinds of other interesting questions like, you know, if we didn't have as much transparency as we do now around school outcomes, would there be that same relationship? Right. right? And, That's right. Uh, and I, mean, I hope the answer is no, that the you know reason that real estate markets are behaving like this is because we have more transparency. And right. uh, and and that's probably on the whole a good thing. Yeah, I mean we know that these great schools and school digger and mm-hmm. school finder, uh, parents love those sites. So yeah. they're they're getting some kind of signal of quality. All right. Well, excellent. Well, hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org. 